Okay, now while I'm getting this set up, I want you to put your hand up if you can speak with reasonable competency another language. Put your hand up if you can speak with reasonable competency another language. Gibberish counts. Does what? Gibberish. Gibberish. I don't reckon gibberish counts. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Which languages have we got? Okay. Cantonese, fantastic, different language than Cantonese or English. Anything else? Yep. Chinese, French, Spanish. I won't test you, so it's okay, just be honest. What else? Dutch. Nice. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Is that it? How about four languages? Tamil. Japanese. That's about six. Hindi, Malayalam. Hindi, Malayalam. Nice. Guys, that's two, right? That's two languages. So that's eight. Filipino, nine. That's it. Korean. Korean, ten. Nothing else? German. Yeah, you'll be able to count more than just a ten, right? I can do that in Spanish, but that does not mean I can count. But about 10. Well, do you know that around the world today there are approximately 6,800 living languages? 6,800 living languages. That doesn't include Latin or Cleon, right? They're not real. <laughs> 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 Cleon's not real, Latin is real, but it's not living. Okay, it's not living. Despite the Sydney University Latin School every time. Um, the, 6,800 living languages, we've got about 10 between us, right? It's just, it blows the mind to think about how many, how many different languages are spoken out there around the world. And I don't know what your reflection is as when you just think about that fact that there's this diversity of languages around the world. All these different languages. People live their whole life not speaking any of the languages you can speak. They speak a different different language. They, they, they get jobs in that language. They go shopping in that language. They say romantic things to the love of their life in that language. They do everything in that language. And you and I can't understand it at all. And there's thousands of languages that fall into that category. I don't know what your reflection is. Your reflection might be, that's amazing. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's rich. All of which I that one of is right. However, you might not realise the Bible actually gives us God's perspective on the reality of all these different languages. How should we think about all of these different languages? And that's what we're going to explore a little bit today by looking at Genesis chapter eleven, a particular story God gives us in the Old Testament that helps us. I guess it enriches our perspective on the reality of all these different languages. But before we get into Genesis chapter 11, which we're going to have read for us in a moment, I want to point you, first of all, to Genesis chapter 10, which is the setup, really, for understanding chapter 11 as well. So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful if you could open up to Genesis chapter 10. There's a genealogy. This is one of those parts of the Bible that often, if you're just reading it for yourself on the train or the bus or whatever, you, you probably 
being honest, you probably did not even read it all the words. Right? You went, oh, forever, oh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we could find the next, oh, chapter 11, that's the last. <laughs> but actually, chapter 10 is really significant. Really significant. It's uh, got the heading there, this is the account of, or these are the generations of, which I explained last week, is the heading that the author of Genesis uses throughout his book to divide up this account in Genesis. And so here's a particular heading, and it runs all the way through till after the story in chapter 11. So it forms one unit, which is why we're looking at it together. There's a list of the generations or the descendants from Noah's three sons. Noah comes out of the ark with his three sons and their families, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they have kids, and this is the, their descendants that come from the three sons. It's a highly selective list of descendants. Sometimes he only the author only traces it to maybe the second generation. Sometimes traces it to the fourth or more generation. It's uneven if you draw out the family tree. He doesn't. It's not comprehensive, literally. However, it is comprehensive symbolically. What do I mean by that? It's clearly a very highly selective and stylized account. When you count up, and if you're going, you count up, you count up the number of native Yes, I've counted up the number of natives. Many other people have done this as well. When you count up the number of names that come from the three sons, there are precisely 70 people named, or 70 groups of people named, apart from Nimrod, who's a bit unusual. There's 70. Why 70? Well, 70 is 7 times 10. Seven is <laughs> <laughs> seven. Seven in the Bible is sort of the number of completion. And so if you have seven things, that's sort of complete. If you have seventy things, that's like uber complete, really complete. And here's seventy nations, seventy names sort of picked out, symbolically trying to represent all the nations of the world. It's not literally that, but it's symbolically trying to represent all the nations of the world. And 70 reappears through the Old Testament a number of times. The number of Israelites who go down into Egypt under uh, Joseph uh, is 70. The number of elders who go up on Mount Sinai to sort of feast with God uh, under Moses, 70. The 70 will reappear a number of times. But it has this idea of completion. So symbolically, it's meant to be a complete list of all the nations of the world. Does that make sense? That's the first thing to note. But the second thing to note about this genealogy is this. The genealogies in the book of Genesis often have a theme. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 is a, a list of the godly line that comes, and the, the theme really of that particular genealogy was each person was recorded, so-and-so lived for so many years, and then they died. So-and-so lived for X number of years, and then they died. So-and-so lived for so many years, and then they died. It, it emphasised that each person at this died. Now, if you look at this genealogy, every person on this list died too. Right? That's just what it means to be a human being under sin. But you're not told it. It's not emphasised. It's, it's not the thing that the author is trying to make. He, he makes a different point in this genealogy. What's the point of this genealogy? So you've got, you've got to look for repeated things. You've got to look for repeated words to pick the theme. But what you'll notice here is the repeated theme, and it's at the end of, around the three sons that there, the Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jacob, at the end of each sort of little mini genealogy, 
is a summary statement, and that gives you the theme, because it's the same idea is repeated. Have a look in verse 5, the end of the line of Jacob. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations with its own language. Those four words, right? Now, notice at the end of Ham's genealogy in verse 20, same four words appear. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Jump down to the end of Shem's line, this time verse 31. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. It's pretty clear this is the theme of this genealogy. Here's the spreading out of people after they come out of the ark, the spreading out of God's people to different places, geography, territories, different political entities, nations, different clans, families, groups, tribes, bloodlines, and also languages. This is the division that happens. Now, and now, this is the division of sort of the nations according to the, you know, the, the knowledge of the author of the day. The, you know, he doesn't mention the Australian Aborigines, doesn't mention other people that presumably existed at the same period of time as this, but it's the nations of the known world, I guess, in the perspective of the author, seven he named in order to try to communicate completion. Okay. That's what's going on here. And in some ways, it's not so different to what we see today, right? People live in different places with their own languages. And, and so this sort of, we go, yeah, I understand it. I understand it. The point, the point of this whole section of Genesis being given to chapter 11 is, how did we end up like this? So think about this just for a moment. When they came out of the ark, Noah and his three sons and their family, presumably they all spoke the same language. Yeah? They presumed they all spoke the same language. Just one family, right? They come out. And yet here you get in chapter 10, they're spread out and they're all speaking different languages. How did you get from all speaking the same language to all speaking different languages? There has to be some explanation for that. Chapter 11 provides the explanation. It provides the backstory for how do we end up in this situation described in chapter 10. So here we have the backstory. It's about a city and a tower, and we're going to have it read out for us now by Amy. Amy. Fantastic. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now, nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole of the earth. So the events of this story are pretty easy to relate. There's all the people gathered in one place with one language. They decide to build a city and a tower. God comes down and looks at it and says, no, nah, I don't want you doing this. In order to stop you, I confuse your languages. I go, I confuse your language in multiple languages. And then suddenly they can't work together, so they leave off building the tower and the city and they disperse. End of story, right? easy to relate the events of the story, how are you meant to interpret it? What significance are you meant to give to the different things in this story? Three things to draw your attention to. First is this. This city and tower, you'll notice there from verse 4, is built in rebellion. Have a look at verse 4. Then they said, the people said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Humankind's Abode is the earth. Whose abode is the heavens? That's your God's abode, right? If you build a tower that's reaching up into the heaven, it's like you're taking a big flag and sticking it in heaven and saying, we belong here. We're not happy just to be here. We want that. So they build a tower that's going to reach to the heavens. It's actually an act of defiance against God. Notice how it goes on. Let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Who named humanity earlier in the book of Genesis? Well, it was one true living God. He created humankind, mankind, in his own image. He gave humanity a name. But humanity is not happy with whatever name is given by God. Humanity wants to make a name for itself, wants to be known for its own exploits. So it's not content to be humble before the Lord. This is an act of independence from God. And then notice how then the verse ends. So that we make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What was God's command to humankind when he made it? Fill the earth and subdue it. Now you can't fill the earth if you're all just going to hang together. Notice the beginning of this story in chapter 11. They were all in one place and they say, let's make a name for ourselves so that we will not be scattered over the face of the earth. They don't want to separate and fill out the earth. Expressly going against God's command. So this is a city and a tower built in rebellion against God. In some ways, nothing has really changed from Adam and Eve in the garden. The human heart here is still characterised by a defiant rebellion against God. When Adam and Eve were told, don't eat from this tree unless you die, they ate of the tree. When God looked at humanity out of the garden, he saw that every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time. When Noah comes out of the flood, he gets drunk. And here they are. God, the, the people God has created is going to gather together in defiance against him. It's the story of sin. Sin has captured the human heart. Humanity is a slave to sin. It's just been lived out here once again. 
So it's a city and tower built in active rebellion against God. That's the first thing to notice. Second thing to notice, the Lord's, what I've called his handbrake judgment. What does the Lord do in response to this, this act of rebellious defiance? He comes down, like the irony there, he comes down and look at what little humanity is trying to do. He comes down and he says, I don't want them doing this. Why? Notice there in verses 6 and 7 what he says. Why doesn't he want them doing this? Verse 6. If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. doesn't mean literally there's nothing they couldn't do. But I think what he's saying is if, if speaking as one language they are engaged in this act of rebellious defiance against me, if I let them continue to act as one people with one language, who knows what sin they might engage in? Who knows how defiant, rebellious they would be? So what he does is he confuses their language. Which means that because their language is confused, they can no longer work together. And so what happens is, well, they just hang with the people they, they understand, people who've got the same sort of language as them. And they're no longer able to work all together. This is a judgment of God on their rebellion. But notice, it's like a handbrake. You remember learning to drive, or maybe you haven't had that joy yet, or maybe you're in the middle of it, getting up your 120 hours. But learning to drive, I don't know if you've done this, but maybe this is what I do. I remember a time where learning to drive, and uh, yes, we had cars when I was young. <laughs> and you know when you're sitting in the car, parked next to the curb, and you've got to take out, and there's a whole sequence of things you're meant to do. You know, it's sort of, do you check your shoulder first, and then indicate, and then mirror? Oh, I can't remember the right order. I'm sure some of you know, engraved on your mind at the moment. But anyway, you do the indicator, you check the mirror, you check your shoulder, and you take out, right? And I remember doing that and going, gee, the car's really not moving very well. I'll just gun it a bit more. And you really press that car. And the person next to you is sort of having, oh, you're having a heart attack or something. And they're going, the handbrake, the handbrake. I'm going, yes? The handbrake is off. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you sort of stop in the middle of the road and take the handbrake off. All the other cars are down at horns. You've tried to drive with your handbrake on? It's really difficult to do. When the Lord comes down once and then God, He confuses their language. It's like He applies the handbrake to human sin. It stops humanity acting as sinfully, as rebelliously as they might do if they could all understand each other. It restricts how much they can work together in sin. It's God's handbrake on our ability to collude together in evil, in wickedness. Is that what the text says? Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that when you think about the reality of different languages. We look at 6,800 living languages, they're all wonderful, and they are. They're good. However, the very fact that we have this multiplicity of languages is not just a, ah, there you go, isn't that interesting? The Bible informs you and goes, wow, the fact that I can't understand French or Urdu or Filipino, that actually is God's, it's a reflection of God's handwrite judgment on our sinful human hearts. 
It's a reminder that yet the inclination of our heart is so often evil, evil even all the time, apart from the transforming work of Christ. Now, does that mean that languages are somehow a bad thing? No, no, not at all. But the fact that there are all these different languages, according to the scriptures, is an indication of the sin of the Christian heart. God can break judgment on it. Third thing to notice from this story, look how the Lord's purposes do eventually win out. If you look down there in verses 8 and 9, remember the people did not want to be scattered. They wanted to make a name for themselves. wonder how those two things ended up. Well, if you look here in verse 8 and 9, you find out. So the Lord scattered, the Lord scattered them over the, from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The Lord used his judgment, his confusion language, to achieve his purpose. Because once I couldn't understand the people next to me anymore because of different languages, so I just hung with the people with the same language and we went off and just hung out together. That's what it did. So it had the effect of separating the people, grouping them together, and they tended to spread out around the earth. So the Lord used his judgment in order to achieve his greater purpose. Now, people want to make a name for themselves, but what is the only thing named in this story? The only thing named is the city that they couldn't even finish building. And it's called Babel, which means confusion. And so it's named after what God did, not what they achieved. The Lord is the one who won out of this. His purposes were fulfilled. Even through their evil intention, even through his judgment, he achieved his good purposes for humanity. That humanity might fill the earth and subdue it. Now that, that dynamic of human evil, the Lord's judgment then used to achieve his greater purposes, doesn't that just remind you of something? Doesn't that just remind you of what God did in the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross? Where through a tremendous act of human wickedness, in fact the worst act of human wickedness ever, and God's judgment can be great good. Think about this for a moment. The Holocaust was without doubt a horrendous human evil. The death of Jesus Christ, God amongst us in flesh, that we crucify him, put him to death, that is an even more horrendous evil. Not to diminish or make light of the, the terrible evil of the Holocaust, but when God then comes amongst us in love and we kill him, there is the absolute death of human evil. So there is great human evil. There is God's punishment poured out on Jesus actually for that very human evil. For all human evil poured out on Jesus. For all the evil of the people involved in, the, in, in Babel. For all the evil of the people before the flood. For all the people who every human being all about sin the wrath of God poured out on Jesus there in order that we all might be forgiven. 
That's what Acts chapter 2, the very first Christian sermon, teaches us. You can see there that as Peter, one of the apostles, is preaching, he says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Therefore, have a respond, repent, and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. You get there, in that sermon, you get both human evil and wickedness seen in the death of the Messiah. According to God's plans, it still happens within God's plans and foreknowledge. As judgment's poured out, he achieves his purposes and people are actually brought forgiveness through this. This is how the Lord works, even through his judgments and human evil. Well, what then can we say in the light of this? What can we now say about human languages? We've sort of seen how they came about, but what can we say about them now? Is there anything to say, actually? Oh, yeah, there is. There's good stuff to say because of Jesus. The first little thing to say, we're going to talk more about this next week, because the two issues here of nations, nationality and language sort of go together. Nation, culture, language all sort of go together. I really just want to focus on language this week and nations next week. But just thinking about languages, I guess, I just want to start with this. In Jesus, your nationality, your culture is now secondary. So uh, Paul writes in Colossians, he says, here, meaning in Christ amongst the Christian people, there is no Greek or Jew. I mean, there were. There were Greeks and Jews there in the Christian community. But he's saying, no, because we're now here together in Jesus, in a way there is no Greek or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. Now, who were the barbarians? Well, if you were a Greek person, everyone who's not a Greek is a barbarian. Right? So it's sort of a way to put everyone else down, I guess, as a Greek. The Scythians were pretty much despised by everybody. So Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he wrote this about the Scythians. I mean, wouldn't you love this to be said about your culture? The Scythians, he said, who delight in murdering people and are little better than beasts. So when Paul includes the Scythians here, he's saying even the most despised nationality, you know, we don't care. In Christ, amongst his people, there is no distinction based on nationality. It is all now secondary because Christ is all. Christ is everything for us. And Christ even is in all who are in his people. So the first thing to say is nationality, culture has come secondary. But does that mean it doesn't it's sort of not important or not valuable or any way or somehow when you become a Christian we should all start speaking Hebrew or New Testament Greek sort of have one Christianized sort of language. No, it doesn't at all. In fact, you can see if you fast forward, we're going to zoom, fast forward, <laughs> through to the future, you zoom forward to Revel- the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, here is... The vision that the Lord Jesus, the reason and ascended the Lord Jesus gives John the Apostle of the great future. And this is what John records with this vision that Jesus gives. He says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every 
nation, tribe, people, and language. Very similar four terms to what we saw in Genesis 10. Interesting thing, right? Standing before the throne and before and in front of the Lamb, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our languages are caught up by God into his eternal purposes. Because on that final day, gathered around the throne, praising God and the Lord Jesus Christ, they're doing it in every language. God, even though he introduced the languages as his handbrake judgment, he captures them up into his good purposes and from every language people praise the Lord Jesus. Think about this contrast for a moment. At, at Babel, the nations are scattered by God. Here, in Revelation 7, God gathers them back together. At Babel, they come together in arrogance and rebellion around a tower that they build themselves. In Revelation 7, they come together around Jesus, and the, uh, Jesus the Lamb, and the heavenly throne. And they come together, not in arrogance and rebellion, they come together in praise and worship. At Babel, people attempt to make a name for themselves, but here in Revelation 7, they come together as those who proclaim the name of Jesus, having, if you read the chapter, having washed their robes white in the blood of his cross, having been saved by Jesus' death for their sin and rebellion. In Babel, different languages are imposed upon them. In Revelation 7, they come together as people with different languages, but with, interestingly, one message. Not one language, but one message. They are all saying, in a loud sound, literally, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. They're all saying it at once, in all their different languages. Now, can you say that phrase, salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb, in your language, in Tamil? Can you say it in Tamil, salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb, in, I can't remember everyone else's language. Filipino, we had somewhere, Dutch, we had somewhere. Can you say it? I'm not going to test you. I, whatever language you can say it in, I want you to say it in a loud voice. Let them hear it. Salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb. Ready? One, two, three. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That's why they need to get it. Um, <laughs> that works so much harder. They're too exhausted yet from what I speak. This this is the great plan of God. To bring people from every nation, tribe and language around his throne to sing his praise. That is God's agenda. That is what God is doing in the world. This is what God is doing today. This is what God will be doing tomorrow. This is what the one living God has been doing 
throughout all of human history is bringing us to this moment. The whole Bible is this story from Genesis to Revelation. This is his agenda. Is it yours? Even if you're a Christian person, even if you have love for the Lord Jesus, it's still an important question because you can have your own agenda. You can have written out your sort of life script. These are the things I'm planning to do. Yeah, I mean, I love Jesus, but these are the things I'm planning to do. And insofar as God's agenda fits with mine, that's fine. So I'm going with my agenda. I'll make sure he fits in. Friends, this is God's agenda. Is it yours? This is where he's taking us all. This is where you will be if you're in Christ. So, in the five minutes I have left, how are we going to get there? How do we get from where we are now, 6,800 languages around the world, to this particular point? Okay, here we go. This is going to be ridiculously fast. How's God going to get us there? Like this. Two things. We have Jesus' command and we have Jesus' empowerment. Jesus' command is... From Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So we don't just sit back and just wait for God to get it on there. We have a, a way of coming towards this reality, which is Jesus commands us to make disciples of every nation. Now, if you want to go and make disciples of another nation, you've got to speak their language. How else are they going to understand it? But that's why we have Jesus' empowerment. Notice in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down and the disciples are what? They are empowered, they're given miraculously the ability to speak other languages. We're told there in Acts chapter 2 that there were Jews there in Jerusalem from every nation. And they said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God about Jesus, namely, in our own tongues. Now, it would be pretty awesome if you just got that with the Holy Spirit and suddenly you could speak Urdu, right? But often it doesn't work that way. I think that God did that astoundingly at that particular moment to help the slightly slow disciples work out that, oh, that's how we're meant to do it. We actually have to go and speak in other languages. So and he gave them the empowerment to do it. You might do it by having to go to language school. But it's the same principle. It's still the spirit that empowers you to actually learn that language. Well, how are we going with languages around the world? Well, here you go. Here are the languages. I just want to talk about Bible translation in our final two minutes. If you want to understand who Jesus is, you need the scriptures, right? So you can read it. There are about 6,800 languages in active use around the world. Only 554 of them have a complete Bible. There are another 1,333 languages that have a New Testament. And there are 1,045 languages that have a portion, meaning they've got maybe one or more books only of the Bible, not a complete New Testament. That leaves 3,955 languages with no, nothing, no, not even a single completed book of the New Testament in their own heart tongue. There's a massive task to do. 
That 3,955 represents, notice there the little figure, the, green, the yellow figure, 513 million people around the world who have no part of the Bible in their own mother tongue. 513 million. That is a huge number. What about in our own sort of part of the world? In the Pacific, there are 734 languages with no part of the Bible in their language. Now, the Wycliffe organisation and others who are experts in the Bible translation business, they've worked out maybe we don't have to do all 734 because sometimes people know more than one language and they're like, maybe they're similar. What's the minimum number they reckon we need to do in the Pacific only? Answer, 391. 391 languages in which there is no existing part of the Bible in a heart language. This is a massive task. If you want to go wider than just the Pacific, you can about Asia, there's another 547 languages. In uh, the world, 1,778 languages that they reckon we've actually got to translate the Bible into. That's a big task, right? If you want to think about, say, China, 337 of the 550 people groups in China do not have even Bible portions in their own language. That represents 195 million people with no part of the Bible in their language. The biggest group there is the Jin Chinese, 62 million people, all speaking the same language, who do not even have a portion of the Bible in their own language. That would be, be a worthwhile use of your life, wouldn't it? To help give them the scriptures so they can know the Lord Jesus. This is why in the EU we keep talking about the less reached and the less resourced. We're aware of the need. We can see their lack. And we're motivated by love. Now, there's more I can say, more I'd love you to say. I'd love you to show you this awesome video about 60 languages in Vanuatu. We're not going to get there, sorry. <laughs> it's five minutes long and you, you won't stand in another five minutes. So my point is just, there is much work to do in order to bring us under God's sacred reality. It's God's agenda, your agenda, and what shape will that take in the rest of your life? Thanks.